Pastor Jeff is out of town this weekend. He's preaching over at uh, South Tampa Fellowship, the church that he started where Pastor JJ is right now. They're kind of having a little homecoming. And so Pastor's over there today. And uh, we have been in a series this uh, summer that Pastor has led us through in the book of Genesis. And it's just been awesome. Uh, as a matter of fact, last week he was uh, speaking about uh, Cain and Abel, truth and opinion. And uh, next week he'll be talking about Enoch and then the Tower of Babel and then Noah. And I really didn't want to uh, just jump out of Genesis to do something freestanding, but I am going to jump about uh, 21 chapters in about 2,000 years. Time goes by real fast in Genesis. But one of the reasons that I wanted to uh, focus here today is something that has just been on my heart uh, because of what I see every Monday night at Celebrate Recovery. It's just, it's just an amazing ministry that I have the privilege to participate in. Uh, but also through our staff stories this summer. I don't know if any of you have been able to come on Wednesday nights and uh, hear our different pastors share their story. Really what they're sharing is God's story in their life. And there's been a common theme both with our pastors and directors sharing and what I see every Monday night. And it's really, if I had to boil it down, it's coming to the end of yourself. Coming to the end of yourself. I love what uh, Pastor Tom shared a few weeks ago on Wednesday. He was talking about before becoming a believer, how he was struggling to find significance, searching for peace, for happiness, for joy, for just life. And he said more times than not as a young adult that he would find himself in a bad place. And he said, what I need to do is to change environments, change locations to get a fresh start. And he said that he would change locations, change environment. But he said he had a problem. And he said he ended up bringing me with me. We bring me with me. And the question is, how do you come to the end of me? How do you come to the end of yourself? Uh, how do you experience that transformation that you saw in the flipping of a piece of cardboard? Well, I, I just, I do believe, and I am going to just share with you tonight that to come to the end of yourself, a changed life, a surrendered will, is gonna, it's gonna take something. Before I even get into that, though, what we do in Celebrate Recovery is we teach through the 12 steps and eight biblical principles. I just want to share those uh, first three principles with you because it's all about how you relate to God. And the first principle is this. Realize that I'm not God. Anybody there yet? <laughs> Any, realize that I am not God, that I am powerless to control the tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life has become unmanageable. And then principle two says this. We, con we earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, he loves us, and that he has the power to help me recover. And then principle three, which is really I'm going to be dancing around principle three all morning long. And it says this, that uh, you consciously choose to commit all my life uh, to Christ, to all of my life and will to Christ's care and control. 
coming to the end of yourself, uh, the end of your will, experiencing God's will. And uh, I'd like to submit to you that at the core of this life change is brokenness. We must be broken. Hence the title of the message on the front of the heartbeat today, Broken. And there is no blessedness without brokenness. And so in our, you know, in our culture today, uh, we don't value broken things. We're in a disposable society. You know, something breaks, you just throw it away. It costs too much to get repaired, you just get a new one. And sometimes we even feel that, you know, when it comes to broken people, uh, there's not much use for them. But you know what? God can only use broken people. And you're going to see that this morning. Uh, now, you, oftentimes we'll talk about having a broken heart. And probably all of us in here have experienced heartbreak. And that usually comes from a, a set of circumstances or a single act or a single circumstance to where maybe it's a failed relationship, a betrayal Maybe some kind of a loss will break our heart. I mean, I know that you know, just a few months back in, uh, in our family, my kids, you know, they had to put a pet down. That broke their heart, kind of broke my heart too, saying goodbye to Obi. You know, it's a heartbreak, you know. Uh, and so sometimes, though, we'll experience a heartbreak, a set of circumstances that really crushes our heart. And sometimes only God can be, bring healing to that broken heart. But that is not the type of brokenness or the broken heart that I want to talk to you about today. Because an, a, an event can happen in your life and you can shed buckets of tears and still not be broken. Not the way that God is seeking for us to be broken. So that's what I'm going to look at this morning. Uh, this other type of brokenness that God is just drawn to, a broken heart which is, uh, that is, can only, we have to have this broken heart to be able to experience God's forgiveness, his grace, his resurrection, uh, restoration, and really his power. We have to be broken. Uh, and our main scripture text this morning, and it's really, I'm only going to read it one time, and it's in Psalm. And I just wanted to sit with you. Uh, it's our scripture thought, if you will. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer, that whole psalm. Uh, you can turn to that when you get home today. Keep it around you. You can personalize that. I've had to do that in my life a number of times. Just pray that psalm where, you know, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. You know, do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. You know, David is at that place of brokenness. And he realizes at the end of this psalm that, you know, what God requires and what God wants is broken people. Because this is what he says in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, thou will not despise. God uses broken people. And... Uh, so you may be saying, what does that mean? What does it mean to be broken? Uh, how do I 
become broken? Do I really desire to be broken? And let me tell you right now, we're never going to go there in our natural leaning uh, because we have too strong of a will. But you're also going to find out today that there's, there's advantages, there's fruits, there's blessings to being broken. And we're going to see that this morning. And I believe a great picture of that is found in Genesis. Uh, again, we're jumping 21 chapters in 2,000 years, and we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob. And uh, we see Jacob, uh, see Jacob's life, really a good portion of it in Genesis chapter 22 through, 25 through 33. Now, I'm not going to read all of that this morning because I do want to focus on one particular picture one particular picture frame of his life. And uh, so that's where we're going to go this morning. But I do have to give you some context. Who, uh, many of you know different aspects of Jacob's life and who he is. And there's so many different sermons that can be taken from different parts of his life. But let me just give you a real quick run through to get you to the point where I want to focus today. But uh, Jacob was a twin, okay? He had a twin brother named Esau. And uh, as they were born, Esau was born first, Jacob was born second. So he is the younger. But, and, and they didn't have the greatest relationship. As a matter of fact, even in the womb, they were struggling with one another to the point where their mother, Rebecca, was saying to the Lord, Lord, what is going on? And she heard from the Lord what was going on, that there's going to be two nations uh, in her womb, and uh, they were going to be at conflict, and the older would serve the younger. So already there was a prophecy there of the younger being the one, the older was going to be the one serving the younger. So they were born, and as they were born, Jake, again, Esau was born first, and as he was born, I can't picture this, but they, in Scripture says he was red and hairy like a, like a garment. I don't know what that looks like, but they decided to name him Esau because of that, okay? And then as he came out, his brother was holding on to his heel, Jacob. And so Jacob was named uh, Supplanter, uh, one who trips, a better... Uh, translation could even be trickster. And that name was going to suit him well. And so the two boys grew up, became young men. And unfortunately, in that home, there was favoritism. Uh, you know, Isaac loved Esau. He was a hunter, someone that stayed in the field, kind of a man's man, if you will. And the only thing that we know about Jacob is that he stayed around in the tents. I don't know what that means, but his mother, Rebecca, loved him. I picture him as a mama's boy. Okay, so as they grow up, just two things that we have to understand is one, uh, Esau ends up selling his birthright to Jacob for a cup of stew. He came in from the field, was hungry, uh, Jacob was cooking, and Esau says, I want some of that. And he says, you can have some of this if you give me your birthright. In other words, the privileges of being the firstborn, which was double portion of the inheritance, the family leader, and the family priest. And Esau didn't care. He said, sure, give me the soup. 
Later on, they continued to grow up, and I think that uh, there was some resentment there with Esau. But I think that, again, their father Isaac preferred Esau. And right before uh, Isaac was to die, he was blind, he was old, he called Esau in and said, you know what, I still want to bless you. I want to make you the one, the heir apparent, even though you sold your birthright. So go out, kill me a deer, bring me back some venison. Rebecca overheard the conversation and tricked her husband into, I won't get into the whole story, of giving Jacob that blessing. And then once Esau came back and understood that, he was a little upset and vowed to kill Jacob. And so Rebecca, Jacob's mom, said, hey, listen, you need to run for your life. Go to your uncle Laban, live there because Esau's going to kill you, which he did. So Esau, Jacob, <laughs> Jacob goes on this journey to Haran, where Laban uh, lived. And as he was journeying, I do want to just stop and read a portion of Scripture, because one night he uh, goes to bed, puts a rock under his head as a pillow, and he has a dream, a vision. You've heard it before, Jacob's ladder. But he has this vision, this dream of this ladder extending from earth to heaven and angels going up and down this ladder. And at the very top of the ladder was the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to him, Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 to 16. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give you into your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring sh shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And then following in that scripture, he's making a vow to the Lord and, and calls that place Bethel, house of God. And so there was a, that's a significant event. I, I believe that he left there with a personal relationship with the God who created him. And God was uh, extending the blessing that he had given to Abraham and Isaac and now to Jacob. And so Jacob goes on his way, but you know what? I think he still brought Jacob with him. So he ends up in Haran, finds his uncle Laban, and as he is there, Laban has two daughters. One is Leah, one is Rachel. And scripture says, this is a comparison of the two, uh, Leah had weak eyes. Don't know what that means exactly. And in comparison, Rachel was beautiful. So he fell in love with Rachel. And he came to Laban and said, I want to marry your daughter. And I will work for you for seven years so that I can marry her. Laban said, sounds like a great idea. Seven years pass, it's wedding day, and the trickster's about to get tricked. If you know the story. I don't know how this happened, but there's the wedding, and then there goes the wedding night, and somehow Laban tricked Jacob into marrying weak eyes. Okay? And the next morning... Jacob woke up next to Leah. He was a little upset, 
And he went to Laban and said, what did you do? What, what, I, I wanted to marry Rachel. And he said, well, I can't marry the, off the, oldest, the youngest until the oldest is married. So I tell you what, after a week of celebration with your wedding, with your new wife, you can marry Rachel, and you serve me for another seven years. And so uh, the trickster got tricked. And so now he has two wives and two maidservants, a maidservant from each wife. But during this next number of years, he prospered, and he had a family. Uh, many children were born, especially there was 11 sons born, and after this event that we're going to read later, another son was born, make, making 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. You'll see that in a little bit. So, now Jacob still being Jacob, after he has amassed a, a, a lot of resources, decides he wants to leave Laban and go back home. And so in the middle of the night, he sneaks out without saying goodbye, without saying nothing. He just leaves, Jacob being Jacob. Not going to get into the next portion of the story where Laban chases him. It's not germane to where I want to get to. But as he's going home, the fear gripped his heart because he realized he's going to have to face Esau. And the last time, he knew that Esau was going to kill him. So he was afraid. And Jacob, being Jacob, said, I'll figure this one out. I'm just going to send waves of gifts as I approach Esau. And that as Esau comes and approaches, we'll give him gifts. He'll leave, get more gifts, get more, more gifts. He had a great plan, except Esau wasn't cooperating. He just continued to blow by the different gifts and was on his way to with his eyes set and his target set, Esau's target set on Jacob. And so this is where I believe that Jacob begins to come to the end of himself because he's afraid. Fear has gripped his heart. And in Genesis chapter 32, verses 7 to 12, he turns to the Lord. He begins to pray and listen to his prayer here. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp will be left and can escape. Jacob being Jacob. And then Jacob said, O God, my father, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed over this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, my mo the mothers and with the children. But you said, remember, Lord, you said that I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob's coming to the end of himself, but he's not there yet. You know what, you can, you can have an event that comes into your life, and it can rock your world. And you can call on God and ask God to help you and deliver you, and he may. But you can leave that and still not be broken. You can leave that and still take me with me 
And I believe that's where Jacob was. He still hadn't completely come to the end of himself until we are going to see here this next portion of Scripture. And it really, the setting for this is really the night before that he anticipates meeting his brother. And he's, he's, afraid. he's afraid. He's already divided everything he has into two different camps, you know, thinking that, hey, if Esau comes to one, I can trick him and leave with the other. And so he's standing in some neutral place by himself. And then we're going to pick up and see what happens here in Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 to 32. And in this passage is where I feel and I know where Jacob comes to the end of himself. And there's some things for us to learn in this passage. So verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day couple of things right off the bat. Who was this man? I think scripture is clear, as you're going to see at the end of the story. But some people feel it was an angel. Some people feel that it was the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, that it was Jesus himself coming and wrestling with him. But whoever it is, I, I believe it was the Lord. I believe it was the Lord. And so this man wrestles with him. And here Jacob is all alone. And I'm sure he was worrying, afraid, on edge. And then all of a sudden, someone jumps him in the middle of the night. Who do you think he thought that it was? Esau. And he began this struggle with Esau. And I'm sure it's not what Jacob had anticipated as an answer to his prayer earlier. And then in verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail, the Lord, the angel, whatever, but I say the Lord, when the, the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. You know, I'm sure at the beginning of this struggle, Jacob's intent was to escape you know, is to get away from whoever it was that was fighting him. But somewhere in the midst of this struggle, he realized that it was the Lord. And he, now he doesn't want to get away. He wants to hold on. You're going to see that in a second. And by the way, you may be saying, well, it can't be the Lord because how could Jacob you know, prevail over this because it does say the man says, release me. How many parents or grandparents in here have ever wrestled with your kids and let them win the fight? Okay, this fight was fixed, okay? I wrestle with my grandkids now, you know, uh, seven years old, six years old, and I'm down, you got me, okay? This, fix, this fight was fixed, okay? The Lord was more powerful than Jacob. Uh, in verse 26, and then he said, the Lord, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So now Jacob is no longer wanting to break free. He's going to not let go until a blessing came. And then he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, do you think that the Lord at this point in time was wondering if he had the wrong guy? No. 
What he was, he wasn't asking for identification. He was asking for a confession. And that's how Jacob responded. Remember what his name means. And so the Lord is saying, what is your name? And he's looking for a confession. And I believe that Jacob says, I've been a trickster. I've been the supplanter. I've been uh, the one who is tripping up people. I've been a proud man. And so Jacob is, I believe, making a confession right here and saying what his name is. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So his name now means Israel prevailed with God. That's his new name. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob is saying, tell me who you are. And it's almost like the Lord is saying, hey, you know who I am. And he blessed him. So in verse 30, this is why I know that Jacob knew that he was, he was fighting with the Lord, wrestling with the Lord. So in verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob knew that a new life was beginning. The sun rose up, verse 31, the sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. You know, oftentimes through the struggle, we carry a scar. We carry a scar. And can you, imagine, can you just picture the scene, if you will? Jacob, that morning, leaving that fight, meeting up with his family, limping. I can only imagine what he looked like. Battered, bruised, bleeding, dirty, clothes ripped up, and seeing, I'm sure family is seeing him walking with a limp and saying, what on earth happened to you last night? And his response being, I got blessed. You know, he probably didn't look like a blessed person, but normally we don't. You know, we carry something with us occasionally when our wills have been broken. But we must be broken. Uh, what we see here is uh, uh, this is a perfect picture of how God deals with his people, how he's in the life-changing business, how he transformed Jacob uh, from being a deceiver to being the prince of God. Uh, was it an easy change for Jacob? Absolutely not. Can you imagine the struggle, that, 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 that fight during the night? Uh, but what must be broken? What was broken in Jacob's life? His will, his pride, his self-sufficiency. It's all that bundle that we call me. And we love me. We love me, and we have a difficult time coming to the end of me. And I know that that's something that I think is a, is a lesson that we're going to learn from this, this story this morning. Uh, but that's what happened to Jacob through this struggle. A couple of things that you need to realize, just as you try to identify with this struggle, 
some things to consider in your own life. Number one is this. Sometimes your toughest battles, not sometimes, all the time, your toughest battle will be with God and not the devil. Okay, you'll find it easier to say no to Satan's temptations than to say yes to God who wants to change your life. So your toughest battles are going to be with God and the breaking of your will. And oftentimes we try to get rid of our best blessings. Can you imagine if during the beginning of this struggle that Jacob was successful in getting away? Then he would just run away with Jacob following close behind. He'd end up leaving with me, with me. But he stayed through the struggle. He realized that there was something in this struggle that God was going to use to change his life. And so oftentimes we may try to escape this conflict, this this struggle of will saying, Lord, I, I just can't. And we're successful of not being broken. And you do that too much, you can become calloused to where God's going to really have to to break through. And the last thing to realize is, you know what? Sometimes brokenness is going to leave a mark. Sometimes brokenness is going to leave a mark to keep us humble. I think that's where Paul was when he said to the Lord, hey, take this thorn from me. He prayed three times for this thorn of the flesh, whatever that was, to be removed. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. And Paul said, then most gladly I'm going to boast about my weakness so the power of God can be realized in my life. You know, sometimes we carry a wound with us. God will heal, but oftentimes brokenness can leave a mark. But you know what? A new man came away from that struggle. Jacob was left behind. Now he's walking and living as Israel. For name's sake, he's still referred to as Jacob, but his identity now is that of Israel. Did it change him? Absolutely. You can look at the next chapter in chapter 33 when Esau finally meets up with him. As he sees Esau, all he does is just bow down as a humble, broken man. It says he bowed down seven times before Esau. And Esau came and just embraced him. And then that whole conversation, Jacob is saying, I'm your servant. You're my master. He was understanding now what humbleness really meant. He was broken. He was humble. And I love that verse of Scripture in James chapter 4, verse 6, where God kind of puts into perspective proud people and broken people. It says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, what is brokenness? What is brokenness? I'm going to give you about uh, five or six things that will describe what brokenness is. Because still, you may not be clear. What does it mean, a broken heart? Do I need to feel sorry? Do I need to be downcast? Do I need to not have joy, not find happiness? No, you're going to see in a second what brokenness is. And number one, it's a choice. 
It's a choice. It's an act of our will. It's not a feeling. I choose to be broken. Remember principle three? Consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. So it's a choice that we make to be broken. Next thing, it's an ongoing, continual lifestyle. It's not a one-time experience, okay? He, Jacob was now going to be a broken man. Is he going to fail? Of course, he's going to still have some struggles. It's not perfection, but it's an ongoing, continual lifestyle. That's why I believe in John chap, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So it's an ongoing, continual lifestyle. Brokenness is also a lifestyle of agreeing with God, knowing who he is and who we are. Knowing that he's all-powerful, he's in control, and we're not. It's agreeing with God who he is. And it's also absolute surrender of my will to the will of God. And lastly, it is my response of humility and obedience to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. We've got to be connected to both, His Word, His Spirit, as believers, and then respond with humility and obedience. I think another great picture of, to get an understanding of what it means to be broken is to think about a horse, Okay, you think about a horse, and we've always heard you got to break a horse. Does that mean that this horse, once broken, is just going to be an old nag, you know, a weak, you know, uh, broken down horse? Absolutely not. What you're about to see is a 25-year-old video, okay? And I used to have horses, and you're about to see, maybe, there, that is, that was, that is, <laughs> that is Mickey. Uh, I, when I bought Mickey, that's me in the middle, can't see it, 25-year-old home movie. Uh, but when I bought Mickey, he had just come off the racetrack. He's a thoroughbred, and he was being trained as a jumper. And I love this horse. It was, a, it was an unbelievable horse. And now, that horse could turn any time he wanted to, if he wanted to, and just run me over. But that horse is broken. Now, does he look timid? Does he look weak? He was a magnificent animal. But what you see here is power under control. What you see here is use, usefulness. You know, I, I would ride him, and it was a pleasure. I could put a child or a senior adult on this horse, and they could ride this horse. He was an amazing animal. Now, I had another horse, okay? This other horse here is Precious. I loved Precious. I bought her. See, she's not cooperating, okay? I bought Precious when she was three months old. She was a registered paint. Her dad was a champion. I, and this was, I just love this horse. But you know what? She wasn't broken. But I loved her. I cared for her. I fed her. I think she loved me. I know she did. But she had no use except to be a consumer of my goods. Okay? 
and had a mind of her own, a will of her own, and I was never able to really enjoy having Precious be used the way that I would love to see her used. Uh, she, she had her own will. Okay, you can, you can stop there. But you see the picture? When we're talking about being broken, we're not talking about you being wounded, downcast, no joy in your life. We're talking about his power under control in your life and being useful, being used the way that God intended you to be used for his kingdom. There's only two horses in the race this morning in this room. You're either Mickey or you're precious. It's true. You're either one who God can use and your will is his will and his power is working in and through you or you're just a consumer, you know? Now, God loves you if you're his and he's going to care for you and he's going to, but true blessing comes from being broken. And you know, really, brokenness has two dimensions. It has a, uh, a vertical dimension where we live with our roof off and worship of God, knowing who he is and who we are. We call that C1 around here, connecting to God, loving God. And it's also, it has a horizontal dimension where we live with our walls down in connection with one another. That's what we call C2, connecting with others, being an authentic community with other believers. And what happens when you live your walls down? There's no pride. What you saw up here this morning is a bunch of humble people. Every once in a while, people say, well, CR is for those people. Absolutely. Broken people who have given their will to God's will, and I enjoy being around those people. Because they have understood what it means to, to be broken, to be broken. And when, when you live with the roof off and the walls down, that's true humility. But pride keeps us with the roof on and the walls up. You know, in Scripture, oftentimes, there's many examples of brokenness. And interestingly, it's usually in contrast with proud people. In the New Testament, there's like, I'm just going to say real quick, there's about four or five that Jesus just lays before us. There's two people praying. One was a Pharisee, very proud, and he was saying, thank you, Lord, in front of all these people that I'm not like that tax collector over there. And in contrast, that tax collector is praying, and he says, God, be gracious to me, a sinner. Humble, broken. There's two people at a banquet. You know, there is uh, the, uh, Simon the Pharisee, proud, throwing the party, having all of his friends there. And then a woman who comes in, broken, humble, comes and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears. There's also two givers that Jesus talks about. The proud person that comes and gives his offering in front of everyone for the show. And then there's the widow who gives all that she has, humble, broken. There's two sons in Scripture. One, proud, hurt, entitled, 
And then the other son, the prodigal son, broken, who comes home and says, I'm not even worthy to be your son. I'll be your servant, broken and humble. Who did Jesus honor? Who did he recognize? The broken people. In the Old Testament, real quickly, just consider two kings. One king, in a fit of passion, committed adultery uh, with his neighbor's wife and then orchestrated his neighbor's death to cover up this affair. Yet when the story of his life is told, the man is identified as a man after God's own heart. Now consider his predecessor, King Saul. In contrast, he was only guilty of incomplete obedience. In comparison, his sin seemed relatively insignificant, but in the end it cost him his kingdom, his family, and his life. What's the difference? Their response. Their response. When King Saul was confronted with his sin, he defended it, justified it, excused himself, blamed others, and tried to cover up his sin and the consequences. In short, his response revealed a proud man. In comparison, David, when he was confronted with his sin, he was willing to acknowledge his failures, assume personal responsibility, repented of his sins, and became broken. And you can see his prayer in Psalm 51. Question is, why would anyone want to seek brokenness? We, don't, we aren't naturally drawn to that because we love me. And we, we love our will. And we don't want to be broken. But is there advantage of being broken. Yes, there's advantages. There's blessings with brokenness. Jesus said in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, the broken ones, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's blessedness that comes with brokenness. And just real quickly, I'm just going to give you, as I close, just three blessings of being broken. One, God draws near to broken people. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Brokenness. He's supernaturally drawn to broken people. Second thing you need to understand is new life is released through a broken life. On the eve of Christ's crucifixion, he told his disciples as he broke the bread, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And through that brokenness, we get eternal life. And as you consider yourselves as a believer, when you become broken and the walls come down, you can be used to give life to others this eternal life to others. So what? What are you going to do with what you heard this morning? You have to make a choice. Like I said, there's only two horses in this race. You're either Mickey or Precious. You're, even, you're either someone who is broken or someone who is not broken. You're someone who is humble or you're someone that still has that pride and self-sufficiency as part of your life. And remember, your toughest battles are going to be against God. 
and not against Satan because he wants to change your life. And we often try to get rid of our best blessings. Don't leave here today taking you with you. So what does God want you to do that your flesh is telling you not to do? Or maybe, what is God telling you not to do that you're not willing to obey and you're not willing to be broken? You know, you can look at your own personal stewardship, your time, your talents, your treasures. Are they all for you and your little me? Or have you been broken to where, God, whatever you will, and we know what his will is in those areas of our life. So what does God want you to do? What is it that you need to be broken of so that you can be blessed today? You'll either leave here, you're going to leave here making some decision. I'm going to be Mickey or I'm going to take me and be precious.